Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus today. We praise you and your name alone. Would you have your way with us now and speak to us as we have prayed. You've already declared that the grave has no claim on us. May you declare your truth over our lives now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And have a seat. Maybe it's just me, but today the days seem darker than ever. I'm not referring to physical darkness, because we're, of course, approaching the longest days of the year. I'm talking about cultural, moral, and spiritual darkness. We've always lived in a broken world of corruption, decay, pollution, conflict, and death. But even as many things in life seem to be getting better to improve and technology is skyrocketing, does it not seem like we're still going downhill in brokenness? People are more polarized from each other than we have seen in generations. Drug use, overdoses are through the roof. Porn addictions, pervasive. Entire months are devoted to celebrating depravity, as it's described in Scripture. Traditional morality is now seen as more than just antiquated, but actually evil. I can't look at a, a news site today without seeing something that should be totally depressing. And we also see friends and family slipping away from faithfulness or the faith altogether. It all reminds me of what Jesus once said about some future days from him, that because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Now, I don't remind you of all this in order to get you depressed. You, as you see this, that's not my goal at all. God is still mightily at work today, and there is so much to be encouraged about today still. I love the line in the new song we've been singing. It goes, in these times we live in, we will praise the Lord. And there's a godly defiance and optimism in those words. It's like in every season, there is still reason to praise the Lord. Today... So I don't want to discourage us. I more want us to think about how we should be responding as God's people to these dark days. As his people, how should we think? How should we feel? What should we do? So for the next few weeks, what we're going to do is look at a little overlooked book in the Old Testament, I believe, from a prophet called Zephaniah. But before you grab a Bible and turn to Zephaniah, I want to do something a bit unusual today and set the stage for us by showing you the story behind Zephaniah and his prophecies. What context did he find himself in in the times that he lived in? 
The background story of God's people in Zephaniah's day is more than just biblical trivia. It actually begins to preach the same message that Zephaniah wanted to preach. That, yes, the days were dark. And they were going to get darker yet. But there was still hope for God's people to humbly seek him and to find him. And to find him to find everything they need. To see this, I'll have you turn in a Bible to actually 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles 33. And uh, chapters 33 to 35 here cover three generations in Israel's history during the 7th century before Christ. Now, the book of Zephaniah, which we'll see over the next few weeks, situated about 400 pages after this, begins with this introduction. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. That's all the context that we're actually going to be given, that God spoke to this Zephaniah, giving him a message to share. We're given a bit of Zephaniah's family tree, five names that may not mean much to us, though the Hezekiah you heard may well have been the famous king, Hezekiah. Lastly, we're told that Zephaniah's prophecies took place while Josiah was king in Judah. But the days between Hezekiah and Josiah were dramatically up and down and up and down and up, like a, like a yo-yo or a violent seesaw. Just the ups and downs are enough to give you whiplash. And that's what we're going to see here in Second Chronicles. It begins right after Hezekiah's death. And Hezekiah was one of the goats, was the greatest of all time of the king's of God's people. Scripture says of Hezekiah that he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. So we have this great godly king dying and leaving his kingdom in flux to his young son Manasseh. Now, when Manasseh, when you hear him take the throne, you should hear an ominous, dun-dun-dun. As under him, Judah was plunged from one of their highest eras to newfound lows. Go ahead and follow along with me from the beginning of chapter 33, where it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. That's the longest reign of any king in the Bible. But long didn't equal good. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth and 
and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Look down at verse 9. It says, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. These were dark days. And verse 10 then gives us this little tidbit that makes it even worse. It says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they did what? They paid no attention. I mean, as a parent, whenever one of my children ignores me, it can be maddening. Or as a preacher, when I'm speaking and one of you fall asleep, <laughs> it's frustrating. How much infinitely more does the Lord deserve to be listened to? And thus, how much more appalling is it to pay no attention to him? God is holy, he's transcendent, he's, he rightfully owes us nothing, and yet he speaks to us. None of us deserve to have him reveal himself to us, to speak to us, yet he mercifully does. Even when things get darker and darker, his voice is still there calling out to us. And this shows us, I believe, that in dark days, the Lord still speaks to his people in his mercy. In dark days, the Lord still speaks to his people in mercy kindness and love and he does so even if he knows that people aren't going to pay any attention to him that's what he does here the lord spoke to manasseh and to his people but they paid no attention i bet that most of us would agree that this happens all the time in our days as well Right? The Lord speaks to his people in a variety of ways through his creation, through his word, through his people speaking or preaching the truth to, to people around them, and more. But most people have shut up their ears and don't want to hear it. They will label the created order as purely natural evolutionary processes. They'll label scripture as man-made, archaic mythology, or worse, hate speech. They don't believe God is or even could be speaking through it. So they dismiss his voice without a second thought. And don't assume that this is just a problem out there in the world. You know your heart. I know mine. How often do we hear him speak, want to respond, but then fail to follow through? Or how often do we leave his word untouched 
upon our shells gathering dust. You can, you can ignore your parents, your teachers, your employer, or your government. I'm not saying you should, but you can, and you may even get away with it. But you cannot disregard your creator, your rightful Lord and King, without repercussions. God kept speaking to his people, reaching out even in some very dark days. And so when they still ignored him, his judgment was very warranted. And look at verse 11. It says, Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Now, some extra backstory for you. The Assyrian Empire was, this is their heyday. They were growing in power during this time. But during Manasseh's father, Hezekiah's reign, God had supernaturally held them at bay. You can read some of the stories in the Bible. So now, it was like God was removing his protection from his people, giving them over. It's noteworthy that Assyria held its most ever power in Judah, here in verse 11, right when Judah's leaders showed the least faith in God. It directly corresponded. God wasn't going to allow the people that, that bore his name, that represented him on earth, to blatantly disregard him with impunity. However, in verse 12, we get a first major plot twist in the story. Okay, so they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with chains of bronze, brought him to Babylon, verse 12. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Isn't that great? And this was undoubtedly what God had been trying to tell them before, that he was the one true God and that they should humbly turn back to him. It took getting conquered, humiliated, and torturously dragged off to a foreign enemy nation to get Manasseh's attention. But in the distress of judgment, Manasseh did respond. And we know he wasn't just asking God to help him because things got too dark for him. As it says, he humbled himself greatly before God. We see he actually genuinely repented. And the redemption of Manasseh is one of the most surprising turnarounds in all of Scripture, I think. And it tells me that there is always hope, no matter who you are or what you've done in life. If you're still breathing, there is still mercy available to you. You're not too far gone yet. Even if you've, you're more advanced in age than most, even if you've been steeped in an immoral lifestyle or secret sins, even if you've greatly offended the Lord, if there was mercy for Manasseh, there is certainly mercy for you and for me. And that much more so on this side of the cross. 
right, where mercy through Christ is poured out on sinners. What we need to do now is just reach out and accept his mercy. Turning from our wicked ways, turning back to our creator, to our king. If you feel down today because of the darkness in your own soul, whether or not God has let you hit rock bottom yet, I would urge you to turn to the light of the world. Turn to Jesus and let him shine on you. If you don't know how to do this, we would love to help you do that. So please come talk with us. I'm not promising. You may or may not be restored to some past position or glory like Manasseh was. Your life may still hold lots of hardship. But I promise you this, that eventually your future will be incredibly bright and unimaginably glorious. In the meantime, once God truly changes our hearts, changing our lives is certain to follow. And you can read about the big reforms, the big changes that Manasseh undertook in verses 14 down to 17. We won't read them. You can look at them there. His repentance, though, led to this transformed life a transformed reign, and a transformed nation. If you think that you have turned back to God, but nothing changes in your life, it's not true repentance. Like God invites you to come to him just as you are, but he doesn't leave you just as you are. Sadly, while Manasseh's reforms appear to have changed his heart for good, they didn't reach the heart of his son, the son who took over the throne after Manasseh died. We see this in verse 20. It says, So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house, and Amon, his son, reigned in his place. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Amon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. Amon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh his father had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. But this Amon incurred guilt more and more. And thus Judah's spiritual state, came crashing back down along with their ruler. Amon was immoral, idolatrous, arrogant, increasingly guilty, and he was so despicable that his own servants assassinated him after only two years. They would rather be ruled by an eight-year-old than by Amon. No joke. Look at the end of the chapter. It says, and they had conspired against King Amon. The people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. In the next chapter, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Now, there's this huge contrast. I don't know if you saw it. In the text between Manasseh's response to the Lord and Amon's. Or the lack of his lack thereof, really. While Manasseh humbled himself greatly before God, verse 23 emphasizes that Amon did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh had. Humility 
It was clearly foundational to the response that God desired from these men. He still spoke, but would they recognize him as God and place themselves under him? That would be humility for them. Manasseh's humility led to restoration and honor. Amon's pride led to his downfall. And then their son and grandson, Josiah, would be especially characterized by humility. And I believe that this hints at one of the biggest points that we can see in these chapters. That in dark days, not only does the Lord speak to his people, but the Lord's people still seek him in humility. We must seek him. In dark days, the Lord's true people will still seek him in humility. And Josiah is going to exemplify this point. Though unlike his grandfather turning to God later in life, Josiah shows that you can still seek the Lord, even follow him from the youngest of ages. Chapter 34 describes four different events of his reign while he was 8, 16, 20, and 26 years old. Josiah was officially crowned king at that ripe old age of 8. If you're older than 8... I don't know what you were up to at that age, but I'm guessing it wasn't ruling a country. <laughs> Guy was into computer games and baseball cards. We aren't told much about the first handful of years of Josiah's reign, but by the time he was 16, the Lord had his heart, and Josiah was seeking after him. Look at verse 2 in chapter 34. It says, And Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the card and the metal images. So this leads to another big upswing in the story. But it wasn't that way at first. Like, it started in the dark. Josiah had began his reign with the likely trauma of hearing that his father had been murdered. And his dad had sent his country into a tailspin. Society was in upheaval. The, the throne was unstable, likely untrusted. The, the palace intrigue must have been unreal. And thus, Josiah shows again what it was like to seek the Lord in the midst of dark days. And we wonder, well, what sparked his initial desire to go after God? Was it his grandfather's repentance? Was it stories someone told him about David, his ancestor? Or David's God? We don't know. We only know that as a teenager, Josiah had this extraordinary resolve. He would seek the Lord. Yahweh. He wanted to know him. To love him. To follow him. Follow his ways. Let me ask you. Do you want to seek the Lord? Do you want to know him? To love him? To follow his ways? Will you seek the Lord? 
even as seeking him becomes ever more uncool, even scandalous? Will you seek him in humility, even if your friends and family turn on you in hostility? Are you committed to seeking him, even when it's really hard to stay focused on him? In the midst of the cares of life and life's distractions. I'll tell you this, seeking the Lord is our only true hope for getting through to the other side. You realize in uh, Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You realize, realize that Jesus said that in the context of us being anxious in troubled times. The very next words were, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Troubled times, what do we do? We seek the Lord. We're going to hear all kinds of ideas or strategies for how Christians should respond to today's world. Maybe, got to stand up for our rights. Live not by lies. Alternatively, we should withdraw from society, form our own Christian culture. Or we've got to, to speak the truth to power, to fight back, make Canada Christian again. Alternatively, we need to turn the other cheek, like Jesus, be willing to, to take some abuse. Or maybe... We should devote all our efforts to doing justice in this world of injustice. Or we've got to be doing more apologetics, more evangelism, pursuing revival. Now, I'm not saying that all those are bad things to do. Some of them are very good things to do. Others not so great. But I do believe that none of them are the top biblical priority. If we find ourselves in dark days. Our first response should always be to seek the Lord. To pray, to worship, to learn, to pursue, to follow, to treasure Him, to cling to Him. As another prophet Isaiah said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. He's not like us. In other words, he's way more compassionate than we are far more merciful than we are. No wonder he's our only hope. Josiah either saw this or he learned it along the way. And as he sought the Lord, it inevitably led to him making changes around the place. Like it had for his grandpa. His seeking of God eventually led to transformative action for God. So it says in the 
let's see, verse 3, partway through, he began to seek the God of David his father, and in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them, and he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on the altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem, and in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder, cut down all the incense altars throughout the, all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now, Josiah's reforms here were actually much more thorough and extensive than Manasseh's had been. Most of the geographic places that verse 6 mentions were in Israel. Now, if you know this, Josiah was king of Judah. They were not the same nation anymore. This was beyond Josiah's realm, his jurisdiction. Israel was no longer part of the same kingdom as Judah. By now, Israel had also been conquered under the firm control of Assyria, exiled by them. Land was under their control of the number one enemy of Judah's. And yet, at only 20 years old, Josiah boldly marched across Israel, making these radical reforms, overthrowing the traditions that had dominated these parts for years. This was either great faith or great foolishness. Oh, I expect the former. Kids who are here, whether you're a kid of 8, 16, or 20, or a kid of 39, 55, 80, do not let anyone look down on your age or your youth, your old age, whatever. You can still do great things for the Lord. You can stand up for him in your home, your school, or your neighborhood. Even if seeking the Lord and standing up for him makes things darker for you now. He will have the final word. He'll have the last laugh. You want to be on his side of history. As it so happened, just as Assyria had become strongest while Manasseh was unfaithful, Assyria experienced unprecedented struggles during Josiah's rule. Coincidence? No. But at the age of 26, the most significant moment of Josiah's reign took place. After removing many of the sources of evil across the land, Josiah turned his attention to restoring what was holy. Verse 8 says, Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So, and the verses that follow describe this big building project he starts on the temple. And as they carried on this work, something was not being sought, but it was found. Look in verse 14. 
says, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah, if I can turn the page. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, All that was committed to your servants they are doing. They've emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord. They've given it to the hands of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. Now it's hard to fathom how the critical central scroll of the law of the Lord was lost at some point. It's how dark it got. It was lost. Which makes Josiah's already completed reforms even more amazing. Because he had been doing all of this without, without much, if any, revelation from God. But now they'd found the book. This was really a marvelous discovery. This, they had God's word again. Knowing exactly what God desired or demanded of them would help so much. I imagine Josiah must have been giddy with excitement as the scroll began to be read. But then his face began to fall. First in alarm, then in despair. Verse 19 says, And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Here, Josiah's humility is on full display. He was the king. He was the, the highest, most noble person in the land. But he was brought low by the word of God. He was humble enough to abase himself, tearing his royal robes, to lament and to repent. Now you might be a bit confused about the word humility, as it has been often misunderstood. Humility is not hiding yourself, hating yourself, or being weak, or a walkover. It's actually seeing yourself accurately as you really are, not lower than you really are in reality, but who you really are in relation to our holy God. You're a creature. You're a sinner. And then humility is being overwhelmed at how loved you are anyway. And God's holiness humbles us, but God's love can humble us even more. Like what is man that God is mindful of me? This leads not to self-despising, but to a self-forgetfulness that ultimately leads to joy. Like we can breathe a sigh of relief. Like we don't need to satisfy or sustain ourselves. We don't need to be God to ourselves. As Gavin Orland puts it, being a big deal is a burden. Humility, in contrast, means you don't interpret everything in relation to yourself, and you don't need to. It is the death of the narrow, suffocating filter of self-referentiality. It is the nourishing, calming acceptance that you have a small place in a much larger story. 
that your life is being guided by something far bigger than your plans or controls and serving something far bigger than your sole benefit. Humility is the joy of embracing life as it is meant to be lived. Now, Josiah wasn't at the joy part of humility yet, but he was on the path to arriving there. What had him so upset, though? Well, this goes back to our first point of the day. The Lord had spoken, and Josiah realized that they had neglected his word. Listen for the emphasis on God's word as he gives orders to some servants in verse 21. It says, Josiah said, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Like Josiah was saying, we deserve God's wrath because we have ignored God's word. And he sought out prophets in the land to hear more from the Lord. One of these prophets, a woman named Huldah, was found. And she confirmed, thus says the Lord, yes, I am going to judge my people to bring disaster upon Judah. It's going to happen. However, God had a special word for Josiah through Huldah. We see this in verse 26. It says, But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace." And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Do you see what she was saying? That God was going to delay his judgment. And he's going to honor Josiah. Why? Because he had humbled himself when he heard God's word. Josiah had truly heard the Lord. And therefore, the Lord would hear Josiah. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words, and you have humbled yourself before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Sounds like Jesus' words in Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Following this, Josiah gathered the people from all over the country. And once they were gathered, verse 30 says that he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took 
took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. So Josiah spread the word to all he could, and the people followed him. They followed his lead in following God's word. Chapter 35, we won't read it, but it largely describes one major way they put it into practice by restoring the right practice of the Passover feast, which we talked about last Sunday. Josiah led the way in doing just as the word of the Lord said, verse 6 tells us, and then verse 18 says that there had not been a Passover like that one in centuries. But you see, The Lord was still speaking, even in dark days, if anyone had the ears to hear. And we have his word now. He's still speaking in our dark days, if we'll have the ears to hear. It appears that the days, these days of Josiah's reforms were when the prophet Zephaniah arose in Judah. Josiah heard God's word, publicly covenanted to follow what it said, and Zephaniah's prophetic words would have given invaluable support to the reform efforts. For a young king trying to lead radical reform, a powerful prophet backing him would have been a literal godsend. Now, Zephaniah, as we're going to see, wasn't the rosiest guy. He describes some pretty dark judgments in dark days. Yet at the same time, he holds out the hope of God's mercy to those who seek him. Zephaniah's descriptions of God's love at times just stagger the imagination. So we'll see that even as destruction looms, God's love will yet prevail. In coming weeks, we might wonder, Why Zephaniah gets so dark at times? I mean, weren't things going pretty well under Josiah? And yes, they were. But there's no way that all the entrenched sinful practices from prior kings were eradicated overnight. It had to have taken years to reform the whole nation. And also, remember that we just saw this. God didn't remove the judgment entirely. He postponed it until after Josiah was gone but it would still come. And we can see both God's mercy and justice here. In 2 Kings 23, Josiah's legacy is described this way. It says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So God's mercy enabled him to have that great of a reign. But it continues, Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah. Do you wonder if we could be in another time of delayed judgment? I mean, sometimes I look around the world and think, how has God lasted this long? To, how has he not acted yet? Lovingly, he desires all people to repent. 
And mercifully, he's waiting on judgment. Even now. Who knows, maybe he's waiting on you. And yet don't be lulled into slumber because his judgment will certainly come. His word still speaks to us. In the meantime, are we allowing God's word to shape our lives? Do we let it speak to us? Or do we more often ignore it? Are we utterly distracted from it? Do we take it for granted that God has spoken to us, that we can hear him in dark days? Do we treasure the comfort, the correction, the consolation that his word provides us? Do we depend on the light that it sheds on our lives' paths? And do we obey it, keeping his commands with all our heart and all our soul? And when God speaks, are we willing to make radical changes in our lives? Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 24, that everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The storms are coming. If you're built on the rock, you'll be ready for them. Another thing I think these chapters show us is how much, how so much can change in so little time. Like this swinging back and forth between each generation is rather dizzying. And this was millennia before modern technology supercharged the speed of cultural change. It goes to show how each new generation must respond afresh to the Lord's voice. As David Baker says, dependence on the faith and piety of a preceding generation is not enough. A personal commitment to the covenant was needed by each successive king in each generation of Israel, as it still is for each generation in the church. Neither the 21st century church nor the Israel of the monarchy can be second generation children of God. The commitment must be made individually and personally by everyone. In other words, there's no riding into God's kingdom on the coattails of your parents or grandparents. Don't assume that you're okay because you've got a Christian background or you go to church. Or parents, don't assume your kids will be all right just because you love the Lord. For every Manasseh who repents, there's an Amon who relapses. For every faithful Josiah, there's a faithless son of Josiah. Yes, even the great Josiah's sons and grandsons went astray. Immediately rolling back Josiah's reforms and swinging back to doing evil. And after a, a rapid succession of four brief, tumultuous reigns, we see Judah too get exiled off to Babylon. Every generation must decide anew if they will follow the Lord's words or not. Josiah's paid attention. The next didn't. And thus, Zephaniah's warnings, which we're going to see, ultimately went unheeded. And God's judgment fell. Even people who are faithful need to keep a close watch on their own hearts. At the end of chapter 35 here, it talks about the untimely end of Josiah's reign. He stuck, in, in some, he, he stuck 
the nose of his military into a conflict that they didn't belong to, they didn't need to enter. God tried to warn him, even speaking through a foreign ruler to him. But verse 22 says that he did not listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God. Thus, Josiah, who seemed to have a near spotless legacy of heeding God's word, ended his life prematurely because of what? Not listening to God's words. Oh, the irony. This past winter in Ottawa was apparently the darkest we've had in many years. We had the least sunlight and most overcast skies since 1940. So if you felt a little bit more gloomy than normal, maybe now you know why. Lack of sunlight doesn't only affect us psychologically, but also physically in many ways. And there are good reasons that like, sun vacations are so popular with people like us up here. We need the sun. I think there's a spiritual parallel here, though. Because we have entered or are entering a dark season. We may be feeling better physically lately with the return of the sun, but spiritually our souls are experiencing overcast skies quite often. So what do we do? Well, the Lord speaks to his people, shines light on our path. So listen to him. And humbly seek after him. Even in the darkness, he can be found. On another dark day for God's people, Jeremiah gave them this prophecy from the Lord. He said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And on the darkest day of all, Jesus, the light of the world, let the light of his life go out so that those of us who seek him and follow him now will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you have this light shining in your heart? Are you walking in his light? Then do not despair in our dark days. The hope that burns within us, the dark cannot destroy. For the sun, S-O-N, has risen. And the sun will return. Let's pray.